Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. On oil pricing, um, the price of oil, whether you measure it in WTI or Brent, continues to march up. Uh, you now see articles predicting that it's going to that this is a trend that is going to continue. The logic is that the major companies, the uh, Exxon, Shell, Chevron, are uh, not BP are not going to undertake new projects. That every all every oil field or every oil well, when you put it on, starts to deplete, and that we'll have a significant diminution in supply, and that the supply of oil looking forward over the next seven, eight, nine, ten years will be going down faster than demand goes down. The theory is that demand will be going down because 30% or more of all the cars sold will be uh, run on batteries. Um, I don't really believe that that is the way it's going to happen. Um, I think that uh, I think that demand will go down, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm not as convinced that supply um, will uh, <clears throat> that, that we will have a shortage of supply. Um, think about. The worldwide oil business is, you know, people use 100 million barrels of crude, but they're really including a bunch of things that aren't really crude. They're including um, natural gas liquids, you know, which are propanes and natural gasolines and whatnot. But rather than argue about classification, let's just say worldwide supply is 90 million barrels. Uh, of that 90 million barrels, uh, the peak production in the United States was around 14 million barrels. Uh, pre-pandemic, <clears throat> uh, the uh, when when our production was 14 million barrels, 13 and a half, whatever it got to, uh, the next two largest producers were Saudi Arabia and Russia, both at around 11 million barrels. Um, the Saudis always claim that they can produce more oil than they really can. And even when they're producing full out, let's say 11 million barrels, they claim that they have 13 million barrels a day of capacity. That is, is not true. Um, they might have an extra million barrels a day, but probably not more than that. Um, their largest field, Ras Tanura, is still in the 5 million barrel a day range. Ras Tanura has been going for, I don't know, 50 or 60 years. The Saudi, Saudi Aramco engineers have done a marvelous job of engineering with that field, adding water, adding CO2, doing all kinds of technical things to keep 
the largest oil field ever discovered in the world going. Um, sooner or later, the engineers will run out of things to do. And when that starts to decline, you know, it'll be very difficult to add additional fields uh, to make up for the decline. So I think that Saudi Aramco, which is a public company now, you can get a quarterly report for Saudi Aramco just like you get a report for Exxon, uh, is going to be hard pressed to maintain its production capacity. Uh, and they, the, so the dividends, 5% is owned by the public, 95% is owned by the by the kingdom. Uh, so basically by the royal family, there's no real distinction between the government and the royal family. Um, and I think they'll be hard pressed to keep their production flat. Russia is a little more likely, I think, to be able to maintain flat production, spending less than their cash flow. Um, half of the Russian production is with a company that publicly trades. It's more than half owned by the Russian government, but called Rosneft. Um, and you can get financial statement for Rosneft. And when you get a financial statement for Rosneft, you'll see that they do not spend all their cash flow. Uh, they do take on some pretty big projects, you know, oil projects or whatnot in the Arctic. They generally take a partner. They'll take like a Western company like Total, or they'll take one of the Chinese companies. So they're financing these projects by taking in partners, probably on a promoted basis, but they're pretty careful with their balance sheet. They have to, because Russian entities like Rosneft get sanctioned. So they, they have a pretty difficult time raising debt financing. Um, I think from an inspection of Rosneft that, that they should be able to uh, maintain their production. So out of that 90 million barrels a day, now in the US, we're down to 11 million barrels a day. And I think, especially with pretty good results, pretty good commercial results in the Permian, the Delaware, and the Midland Basins. I think the US, especially at $70 oil, ought to be able to maintain the 11 million barrels a day. So remember we're talking 90 total. I think somewhere between 30, 32, 33 million barrels a day will be flat. I don't see that, that the three large producers will go into some kind of a decline. Um, the rest of the world, the next largest producer is Iraq. And Iraq has got lots of problems, but pretty good field. And they, uh, they do take partners in, uh, like Exxon, Chevron, BP has a big position, but when the partners come into Iraq, they're really being hired by 
the Iraqi government, the Iraqi oil company, as kind of general contractors. In other words, it may look like BP is in charge and owns the Ramalia field, which is the largest field in Iraq, but they're really just, they're putting up money because, you know, Iraq needs money, um, but then they get paid out. In other words, they might advance $500 million to do some project in the Ramalia field, but then they'll get export barrels uh, allocated to them that they can export and sell to pay them back the $500 million. So while Iraq, while BP is has committed itself to go green, they still, because it's a pretty good business, will operate the Ramalia field for the Iraqi National Oil Company. So I don't think that Iraqi production, short of, you know, another war or other disruption, I don't think it will decline. The next largest producer is Iran. And the Biden administration wants to revert to uh, trying to, wants to restore the nuclear uh, um, treaty that was signed between Iran and the major European countries plus uh, plus the U.S. Um, the uh, the so the sanctions that Trump had imposed are being lifted. So there will be more Iranian production uh, <clears throat> for export, and I can't really foresee a set of circumstances, even if Trump gets reelected in 24, where Iranian production will decline. I mean, they've been kind of bottled up. Now they'll export some more. And they've gotten pretty adept. It's a pretty big country. And they have some real engineering talent. So they will, They, I think their production will stay flat. Now, I could go on for the rest of the half hour and cover Brazil and Petrobras or China has some oil production. I mean, I, I could go down the list, but when I look at it, I don't see world production doing much more than kind of coasting along at 90 million barrels a day or so. Maybe it's 85, 86, but I don't see it declining to 70. Now, in terms of demand, um, Oil is primarily a transportation fuel, not a power fuel. Um, so it's uh, cars and trucks and airplanes. Um, will, you know, are we likely to have one out of every three cars sold in the world by 2030B battery? I think so. I mean, huge months are being spent by the car companies to do that. And these battery cars will be subsidized by the various governments, tax credits or what have you. So what will that do to worldwide oil demand? Um, it's not a plus. And the theory about worldwide oil demand was that the mature economies, Europe, the United States, and Japan, 
would be flat. And the reason people were predicting flat is because that's what was happening. And what happened there is that there was conservation. Uh, all of us on the phone drive a more efficient car now or truck than 10 years ago. I mean, there's been significant improvements in engineering, uh, fuel economy, uh, size of cars and whatnot. So the mature part of the world was flat. The theory was that the parts of the world, like the two most populous countries, China and India, as more people moved into the middle class, they would want to have a car. Well, the problem with that theory now is that China uh, is going to subsidize battery cars. So the person in a rural area that has enough money to get a car is probably going to wind up with a battery car. So I'm not sure that China demand, India demand is going to go up that much. So, uh, you know, what happens when, you know, 30% of all the cars or more are battery cars? I, you know, I mean, I think oil demand goes down. Um, so, um, if you own companies that produce oil and gas and oils work this way up to, uh, $70, should you sell? No. I mean, I think the companies are being awfully well run and I think they're, they're really committed to having free cash flow of, you know, spending only two thirds of their cash flow and having production grow. I think it actually doesn't look like a bad business. I wouldn't sell. Would I have uh, uh, 30%, 40% of my investable assets in those kinds of companies? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, if you look at the share of GNP, um, it's probably, you know, 12 or 13 or 14% GNP. If you look at the share, the ownership, of uh, or the position in the S&P index is probably four or five percent. Um, from this point forward to the end of the year or this time next year, will companies producing oil, and I'm not even going to get into natural gas, I'll do natural gas next Wednesday, uh, will, they, will they be higher then than they are now? Yes, but is it, is it if, if your goal is to double your money every five years to make 15% a year. Uh, <clears throat> do you want to have more than 12 or 13? Yeah. Like if you own 10 stocks, you want more than one or two of the energy companies. I don't think so. And with that, I've blown through 20 minutes, um, for which I apologize, but I didn't know any other way to get those thoughts out. And I promise not to repeat them next week. Next week, we'll talk about natural gas. Uh, Mike and I talked briefly earlier uh, <clears throat> about the companies we like or would like at a lower price. And uh, Mike and I keep coming back to Moderna. And uh, I, we're not saying that at Moderna's current price, um, one of the 10 companies you own ought to be Moderna. Um, However, uh, uh, if you believe in cash flow, um, I, 
I'm, this is something that I, I know I, I tell everyone to read 10 Qs. Um, while Mike runs through his views on Moderna, uh, I've got a copy of the 10Q in my hand here, and uh, I'll reserve the right, even though we only have 10 minutes left, to interject with commentary on the 10Q. And with that, over to you, Mike. All right, so Moderna, I, I think that the, the tough part about Moderna is how do you put a value on something when we don't know how long-term these, these uh, vaccines are going to be used? Uh, it's, uh, at this point, we don't know whether this, they're going to continue to be effective for a period of 12 months, 24 months, 48 months. Um, that's that's a, a huge question mark. Um, if you think about... Uh, I don't know, your tetanus vac vaccine, you get that on a, on a schedule. I don't, I don't remember if that's seven or 15 years or something like that. So it's, it's probably a non zero number of repeat vaccinations. Um, but figuring out what that is, is uh, today is just, you're, you're putting your finger in the air and there's probably some people on this call that have more experience in this particular industry that might have better insight. Certainly it's being covered in the news today, but the, the long and the short of it is I don't think anybody really knows. And uh, even looking through some of the analyst reports, most people are focused on what the other um, applications of mRNA technology are. And uh, you, there's, there's a number of different ones. Uh, I think they've got four or five all for cancer, um, heart failure, um, I've got a, the list in front of me so that there's there's current indications that they're going after 14 that are that, that are highly relevant. Um, so I, I mean think about the the future of mRNA vaccines is is very exciting. Um, there's a, a good case for um, vaccines against very specific types of cancer now that we've got a very good working knowledge of the different forms of cancer. When somebody has, for example, a hereditary disposition um, to a particular type of cancer, that person, when they're born, once we have their blood and their DNA, we can come up with a, um, a list of vaccines that this person could take to prevent some, some very detrimental, detrimental diseases. So uh, the, it, it, there's no question that mRNA as a technology is really exciting and probably has a long-term future. The question is, how do you value these uh, these cash flows? So the, the typical method that, that these guys go through is you assign some probability to each of these drugs in the pipeline and their ability to become um, become uh, approved uh, approved treatments, and then you size that market um, and, and discount the cash flows from there. So I guess my, again, just putting a finger in the air saying what's, what's out there, you could probably assume that there's a lot more opportunity than what is currently baked into these valuations, um, but they're a big question mark. So we may look back on today and say that, man, I wish we all would have put all of our money into Moderna today, but we may also look back and say, 
oh, the size of this, these markets were much smaller than we thought they would be. It costs a lot more money to develop these vaccines than we thought they would be. And we, we're glad we didn't put any money into it. So I'll, I'll pause there, Hunt, and I'd love to get your feedback. Well, uh, here's, here's, if you look at page seven of the 10Q, there is an income statement. I mean, I, I looked at Moderna at the beginning of the year, and all I had was a 10K, and there was no revenue. So the first quarter of 21 was the first time you see revenue. There's 400 million shares outstanding. Uh, there's no debt. If you look at page six of the 10Q, there's about $12 billion of current assets. And there's about $8 billion of current liabilities. The current liabilities are way overstated because they have, because of the arrangements they've made with the U.S. government, they have almost all those current liabilities that deferred revenue. And I think what that is, is money the government has advanced, uh, which they will repay with vaccines. So I think there's a pretty solid Four billion dollars of working capital, twelve less eight. Um, the um, but the more interesting page is page. So there's plenty of liquidity in the business. The more interesting page is page seven, because this is the first quarter where there is revenue. They recorded revenue for the three months ended March 31 of just under two billion dollars. And net income on that revenue of a billion two. So, I mean, roughly speaking, I mean, I'm going to talk about it being a $200 stock. I know it's somewhat more than that, but 200 is a good round number. There are 400 million shares outstanding. So that means Moderna is being valued at $80 billion. Um, as I say, it has liquidity. Um, we, being Mike and myself and a lot of other people on the, on the phone, if we had something that we thought generated free cash flow, had a good balance sheet, and had a 5% free cash yield, in other words, cash that would be available to pay a dividend or buy in stock or what have you, um, uh, that would mean at $80 billion, we would want $4 billion of free cash flow. Well, I know this is simplified, but they had a billion two of net income, which in effect is their cash flow in the first quarter, uh, a billion two times four, that you're already to that four billion of free cash flow against the 80 billion market value of the company. Um, now, sure, I mean, I've seen one article which predicted that um, that uh, they were uh, they were going to um, have 17 billion of sales this year. <laughs> so if they maintain that profit margin, that would be like uh, oh I don't know eight or nine billion of free cash flow, which would be a 10 percent free cash yield. But as Mike said, who knows? You know what the year after or the year after that is, or you know whether there's you know you're going to want to get a shot every fall, or uh, whether and since this 
virus seems to spread so readily, um, you're going to want to make sure that every person living on the face of the earth, uh, even if it's heavily subsidized by the better off countries, uh, uh, gets gets the vaccine. Um, now, the other thing, of course, is what is it costing them to build this business? If you turn to page 10, their cash flow statement for the first quarter, I mean, they're, they're, it doesn't seem to me that there will be a working capital requirement in this business. Um, uh, 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 so what you're worried about in terms of capital reinvestment is CapEx. I mean, their CapEx in the first quarter was $35 million. Um, again, there have been some articles on Moderna. They, I think, in a, in a making them look like a very serious company, rather than just be intellectual property and farming out the manufacturing to some, someone else, you know, they, they're building their own capacity, I mean, in, in, in the United States. And at least the article I read, they're looking for joint venture partners. I think they have one, two facilities or one in Switzerland, but with a joint venture partner. So it's not just, it's not, I, I don't mean to, to draw this comparison in an unfavorable way, but NVIDIA designs these chips and Taiwan Semiconductor makes them uh, or Samsung makes them. Uh, here, Moderna's making this vaccine. So um, this is a serious company. Now, I've never really owned a pharmaceutical stock because of the points Mike was making about assigning probability to the other things that they're trying to do with their technology. However, um, I'm not sure when, I'm not sure, it, it seems to me, uh, you're always dealing with probabilities, it seems to me quite likely that this business, irrespective of how much how much of the, their vaccine the world needs, I think it's pretty likely that this company over the next several years is going to average at least four or five billion a year of free cash flow. Now, um, if they have like eight billion of free cash flow, you know, what are they going to do with it? Well, I think I think one thing they might start a dividend, which, you know, as you all know, I hardly approve of. I think you start at a fairly low level and try to increase it each year. Uh, you could be like Star Group and buy units in, um, uh, or like CarMax, which doesn't pay a dividend, but does buy a lot of its units in. Uh, is there a set of circumstances four or five years from now where no one needs COVID vaccines and none of these other products have come along? I mean, I guess that could happen to you, but I think really I'm kind of kicking myself and Mike and I were commiserating earlier on the phone. I wish at the beginning of the year, uh, I would have been, you know, bought some at 150 or 140. Uh, I have one friend who knows quite a lot about this area who bought a lot of the stock at 20, uh, even before COVID happened. But, um, the, um, um, I, uh, I, w I want to finish with Mike because, uh, uh, you know, he's able to spend a lot 
higher proportion of its time on these investments than I am. I'm kind of stuck with my day job with the Yorktown stuff. But with that, uh, a couple of minutes to close, Mike, on uh, on the subject of Moderna. And we promise next week we won't spend more than five minutes on Moderna. Next next week we'll we'll talk about chips and other things. But over to you, Mike. Sure. So, so I think to wrap, I, I just like to point out that some of this is art and some of this is science, right? So the, the, the art part is, is making the best educated guess we can to, um, as to what we think is going to happen and then being disciplined enough so that if we make an assumption that, uh, for example, Modernus would be able to generate a sustainable free cash flow in excess of 5% over the coming years, be disciplined enough to know and to move on if that doesn't turn out to be the case and be okay with the fact that sometimes sometimes we, we, we don't get it right all the time. Uh, but our goal is to get it right more often than not. Uh, I think... We've talked about this before that sometimes it's really hard to buy a stock that is moving upward in, in one direction and you just keep kicking yourself for not getting in earlier. Um, and frankly, I think that Moderna is that case in point. Um, I, I, uh, yeah, I, 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 let's leave it at that. I think it's a fantastic company. I think it's a really interesting technology and I think the future for mRNA is very interesting. Um, and again, I'm still kicking myself for not being in it. Good. Well, we're sorry. We're sorry to use so much time on the price of oil and Moderna. We promise next week we'll be more diversified. But with that, everyone stay healthy. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.